one of the things that we know is that exercise is a stress and stress leads to, to, to damage but also the opportunity for adaptation. The way our bodies uh, adapt to the stress of exercise is to build new or better proteins that have been uh, stressed uh, during the exercise. So the amino acids that we eat in, in our diets uh, allow those processes to flourish. Hello and welcome to The Long Munch, the nutrition podcast for runners, cyclists and triathletes. My name is Alan McCubbin. I'm an accredited sports dietitian, lecturer and researcher in sports nutrition at Monash University in Melbourne. And I'm joined as always by my colleague, fellow sports dietitian researcher, Steph Gaskell. How are things with you, Steph? Lockdown yet again. How's it going? Surviving, Alan. Um, I think um, as most people, yeah, we're probably finding each lockdown harder and harder. Um, and I won't lie, like, yeah, you have ups and downs of that. Um, I definitely feel for the people that do have kids, though. Um, you know, I can't complain about that. My own kid is, is my son, Cooper, a little uh, cavoodle. Um, and uh, he does cause trouble, actually, because I came home today and poor Kate, my flatmate, uh, she was almost in tears um, because Cooper, I don't know if I've told you about this little habit he has, um, he, he gets anxious um, and when he gets anxious, um, he goes looking for clothes and his favourite items of clothing are, um, are usually running pants like leggings um, or unfortunately underwear. Um, and what he does to our leggings is he decides to eat the crutch out. <laughs> yes. And Kate recently got a lovely pair of Lulu uh, 11 um, uh, pants that are always quite expensive. <laughs> I was going to say, that's a, an expensive habit for a dog to have. <laughs> and so they are now in the bin with Kate in a room not very happy with Mr. Cooper. <laughs> mm. Yeah, yeah, exactly right. Um, you also had a paper published this week, so big congratulations. Tell us a bit about this this paper. It's been a very exciting week, Alan. <laughs> Which one of those I, is the most exciting? I know. One? <laughs> uh, so, yeah, um, lucky enough to, to have that um, published. Uh, so that was a lot of hard work with the, the Monash team um, being involved in, in that, all of us. Um, so it was not all that long ago we had a, a, a paper out in the Aspatar Sports Medicine Journal um, and that was about, um, I think, you know, sort of a therapeutic type of guidelines um, for practitioners in, in how would they approach um, athletes that present to them when they are experiencing exercise-associated gut symptoms. So we, mm. we tried to help with that education pathway, you know, what types of tests um, are relevant and, and how can you make assessments and then, you know, what's that tell you in terms of then looking at an intervention. Um, we, we've, um, this paper here is presenting, a, it's like a case series of athletes uh, and we had nine, nine athletes and we used that approach with these athletes and it's looking at them through throughout that whole pathway. So they present to us with the particular symptoms, we listen to them, we get that background information, um, the key bits of info, and then from that we then would develop a, um, a gut assessment 
um, protocol. Um, we put them through that. We collect the data, the information that we need um, that then will hopefully tell us a story about the reason, well, why are they getting the symptoms? Uh, and then from that, we then plan what the, the most relevant um, intervention is from what we can see from that data. Um, and then we get them to implement that particular intervention in their training and ideally also in smaller races too um, before the big key one. And then we, we, we don't stop there. Um, we then, okay, well, what's the outcome of that? Because as we know with people presenting with these gut symptoms, we're a lot of the times not always unfortunately going to get things right in the, at the first time. Um, and so it's really important for us to get that um, feedback and then refine it if we need to. So that ongoing monitoring is really important. And so hopefully that's what we've shown in this case series. Um, so, yeah, it was very exciting to get to get that published. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, this the process that you just talked about there is, is pretty much what you described in back in episode 7A of the podcast talking about, you know, why do I get gut issues during exercise and that whole sort of testing process. And then the example in episode 7B with uh, Aniko Lanos uh, being someone who's been through that that process that you just described there uh, and, and, you know, the outcomes that came from that for him. Um, so, yeah, so if anyone's interested in, in gut issues, you can go back and listen to those two episodes of the podcast. Uh, the paper itself is in the journal Frontiers of Physiology. Yes, yep, yep. And um, we'll, we'll link to that through social media as well. So at The Long Munch on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. Yeah, excellent. Yep. Cool. Uh, and speaking of um, social media, uh, you can follow us on, on any of those three platforms. Uh, and if you want to give us any feedback or have any suggestions for particular questions that you'd like answered on the podcast, feel free to contact us that way and, and let us know and um, we'll, we'll see what we can do there as well. Um, so here on The Long Munch, we take a deep dive into the most common nutrition questions that runners, cyclists and triathletes ask. Um, today's topic, it's episode 19A today, uh, so it's time for another topic. Uh, and our question today is again a, a fairly um, common one, I guess, that a lot of uh, runners, cyclists and triathletes have. Uh, one that we've kind of alluded to in, in some previous podcasts. We talked about um, recovery from exercise, you know, what should I eat? and drink after exercise with um, Dr. Isabella, Isabella Russo uh, a little while ago, um, where we touched on protein, but not in specific detail. So our question today is, do I need more protein? Uh, and we're gonna be joined by Associate Professor Dan Moore from the University of Toronto for that. But firstly, Steph, I can see there the rage bubbling inside. <laughs> We had a brief chat about this before we started recording, and uh, it's fair to say this is one that does get under your skin. So one of those topics, I guess, when uh, when it comes up, you sort of go, oh, don't get me started. And that's exactly what happened. You got started. It took a while to calm you down. <laughs> but now we're on air. You can do it again. So what was the issue <laughs> you're gonna what, fire me up again just thinking about it <laughs> yeah well uh, well you don't you, you're laughing too much now you're not fired i know up. i know we'll just wait i'll, I'll tune into that enthusiasm um yeah <laughs> so as as we both uh experience i think when we're working with athletes um and we're we're looking at the overall nutrition intake um 
And we, we may then look at, okay, well, how's their protein going? And um, as we'll learn in this podcast, um, you know, it's not just about um, total protein intake. It's about the um, distribution of protein throughout the day. Um, and often what we can see is that um, we, as a generalisation, many of us can do a really good job of getting our protein hit in the evening. Um, but, but in the morning it can, it can really be lacking. And, you know, I, I hear from, from people saying, oh no, no, I'm fine. I get my protein, you know, perfectly fine. I have for breakfast, I'll, I'll, um, I'll get protein. I'll have, um, a couple tablespoons of yogurt, um, on my cereal or I'll have, um, one egg on toast. Uh, and, and then that's, that's it. Um, and then for dinner, you know, I'll sit down to having half my plate of, of, of being chicken or a steak. Um, so, you know, that, that, that distribution is, is very sort of can be lopsided. Um, but then also it's um, sometimes, um, and very understandably, just not knowing um, where, not always where the protein comes from, but, but how much protein is in particular foods. Um, and if we do want to look at, you know, just even rough amounts where we're talking about that 20 or 30 grams potentially of protein, um, you know, having one egg is, is sadly not going to get you to, to 20 grams of protein. Um, and Or peanut butter. Or, Don't get me started on peanut butter go. and protein. There you go. See, I knew I could get you fired up too. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, and, it, and it's not that we necessarily want people to be, you know, weighing things and those types of things. But it's just having a, a, a good basic understanding of, you know, how much protein can be in, in foods so that you're kind of just making it a bit easier to, to get to that level. So, um, yeah, so so I guess that's my rant is just um, often it's it's it can be very much um, not distributed that well um, and, and it's, you know, not knowing really how much protein is in particular foods. And hey, the difference that, that you and I, I think, both see from when we do educate um, people that we work with in that area, you know, um, the reports back, uh, they do tend to find it can make a big um, difference. And whether that be on how they're feeling performance-wise in, the, in their training and their recovery, and also just this, you know, how they're feeling in terms of fullness and things throughout the day as well. Um, and um, I've recently, you know, had a person that's had, um, you know, big issues with stress fractures and things like that. And, and there were other things going on, but, you know, protein was a big part and, a, and feedback was, you know, they've found that it, it has been really, really helpful um, to them. Now, Steph, that was pretty calm. You were nowhere near that calm when we had exactly that same discussion about 15 <laughs> minutes earlier. I'm just, I've got to keep it, you know, not to, people can't see how crazy I am yet, you know. Uh, well, when we were in the lab the other day, one of your participants was telling you that you need to fire up more for the rant. Oh, that's true. That's true. Yes. Mm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They were telling you too, so. Um, okay. Yep. All right. All right. Bit more ang angry pills bit, before the next bit recording. Bit more angry pills. All right. Game on. All right, so it's episode 19A today, as we said before, uh, and our topic is, do I need more protein? And we're gonna be joined for our interview with uh, Associate Professor Dan Moore. 
So Dan is Associate Professor in Kinesiology uh, and Muscle Physiology at the University of Toronto. He works there within the Faculty of Kinesiology and Physical Education. Um, now, sometimes, Steph, uh, you probably see this as well, like in some, um, and, and anyone else who's listening who has any kind of scientific background, and it doesn't matter what field it's in, there are always certain scientific papers that come out which are kind of like the, the classics, if you like, where there's like a figure or a headline number or result from that paper that just everyone in the industry knows and cites over and over and over again. Now, in protein, it's this study, and I'm sure you've seen this and almost every sports nutrition lecture I've ever seen on protein has this figure in it. It's a figure of feeding zero grams, five grams, 10 grams, 20 grams, and 40 grams of protein and looking at the response in the muscle to feeding those proteins. Now, that paper is Moore et al. So Dan Moore, who's our guest today, that was he's the first author on that paper. Mm. So that was in the American Journal of Clinical Nutrition, I think it was in 2009. Um, and whenever I think protein and sort of classic studies, I always think of, of Moretel. Mm. So it's great to have yeah. Dan on the podcast. Um, but beyond that, uh, the main reason that we wanted to speak to Dan is that a lot of his research in the sort of interaction between protein and exercise over the last probably five years or so has focused particularly on the interactions with endurance exercise. And that's an area that's been really underrepresented in the scientific literature. So uh, a lot of the work historically has been on um, sort of resistance training, you know, weightlifting uh, and the interaction between protein and that form of exercise. Uh, but Dan has done quite a, f a number of the, the small number of studies that exist uh, looking at sort of running and cycling types of exercise uh, and the interactions there with protein. So it's great to, to hear from Dan and get his perspective on um, specifically the role of protein with endurance exercise. Mm. Yeah, yep, and um, yeah, a fan, a fantastic uh, listen for for everyone um, because yeah, as you've said, um, a lot of information we get is about you know it comes from resistance training and um, so I think our endurance athletes will be glad to see some research that that is finally going into what they're practicing. Yeah, absolutely. So let's uh, get into this interview now with Associate Professor Dan Moore. Let's do it. All right, Dan Moore, welcome to the Long Munch podcast. How are things going over there in Toronto? Oh, it's great. Thanks for having me. It's uh, always a pleasure to talk to, to individuals who are interested in some of the research that we do and any chance we can get to translate some of the knowledge is, is, uh, is a lot of fun. So thanks for yeah. having me. Uh, awesome. Thanks, thanks for, for being on. And I know this is a, a question that a lot of um, you know, runners, cyclists and triathletes ask a lot about. And, and some people, I guess, don't really focus around protein all that much as well. So uh, it's good to, to hear and it's good to see some more research starting to happen in this area. I think as we'll get to throughout the podcast, you know, it's an area that hasn't been researched a lot until till more recently. So uh, it's good to sort of get an update on, on where that's at. And I know you've been Kind of at the forefront of a lot of that work which is fantastic um, so i guess just starting off you know your research career is really focused around different aspects of how how our muscles respond to exercise or food or the sort of combination of those and particularly protein what sort of got you interested in that area of research in the first place 
Uh, an excellent mentor. Um, so I did my graduate studies at McMass University under um, Dr. Stu Phillips, and uh, I was given the opportunity to, to perform an undergraduate research project with him. Um, and I realized that I really enjoyed asking questions people didn't know the answers to. And uh, it, it really focused around um, the use of stable isotopes to study uh, human muscle protein synthesis after at the time, uh, different types of exercise. And uh, I was always interested in how our muscles respond to the stress of exercise. And then realizing uh, Professor Phillips' research in uh, protein metabolism, how it, how it can, how nutrition can help it um, muscle remodel and recover from exercise. And so uh, being an athlete uh, myself, albeit not an elite, like many of your podcast listeners, I would imagine, um, it was really interesting to be able to use uh, some new tools, nifty tools, to study some of these questions in, in humans. And so I always say I kind of fell into research, and it was really because I was given the opportunity early to, to, to study and use some, some really novel uh, methods. Okay. Um, so our focus today is obviously around protein in relation to, to runners, cyclists, and triathletes. And I know you've done a number of studies sort of looking at endurance exercise now and, and sort of the interaction between protein and endurance exercise. Was there anything in particular that prompted you to go down that path? Um, it, it, simplistically, there just wasn't a lot of research in this area. Um, you know, I, I saw this as an opportunity to to contribute to some of our knowledge uh, that that athletes uh, might be interested in, and you know, I, growing up, my a lot of my research was with resistance exercise, um, and I think uh, my my view at the time, and maybe the fields a little bit as well, was that you know, proteins just for building bigger muscles, uh, but we know that it's really just for helping repair bodies uh, because it provides the substrates, the amino acid building blocks that allows our bodies to build new proteins or repair ones that have been damaged or, or that are old. So uh, really was, you know, interested in a better understanding what are the requirements for endurance athletes because um, it, it was a bit of a black box. Um, and being able to apply some, some new technologies to older research questions, I think, was exciting for, for me and, and certainly my students. And so, um, you know, one of the things that we know is that exercise is a stress and stress uh, leads to, to, to damage, but also the opportunity for adaptation. And the way our bodies uh, adapt to the stress of exercise is to build new or better proteins that have been uh, stressed uh, during the exercise. So coming full circle, the amino acids that we eat in, in our diets uh, allow those processes to, to, to flourish and to, to be I stimulate to, to, to the highest degree. So it was uh, an opportunity for, for us as a lab to fill a bit of a niche, but also I think um, a knowledge void as well. Yeah, absolutely. And I think a lot of us that are that have been working with endurance athletes or, or you know, endurance athletes that are sort of you know, across the, the science of sports nutrition has sort of been really uh, recognizing that there was that gap and sort of having to kind of extrapolate the work that had been done in, in, you know, lifting weights and resistance training to sort of say, well, we know that this kind of works in resistance training and we kind of assume that it works in endurance training. So we kind of, you know, 
base our recommendations on that because that's all we had. So it's it's great to see you know work from yourself and, and others in this space to try and sort of fill that gap and confirm that that's actually the way we need to go or, or, or not, which is great. Yeah, so um, as we mentioned, most people tend to think about protein as, as, I guess, something that's needed for athletes doing that sort of strength or, or resistance training generally to build muscles. Um, but as you've mentioned, it's, it's to help with adaptations. Um, so I guess a bit more specifically in that, why do runners, cyclists and, and triathletes, who are our listeners, um, need to, to think about protein? Yeah. Um, so as I mentioned, uh, you know, exercise is a stress. And so if you think about disciplines such as running, um, where there might be a lot of ground reaction forces or certainly, um, you know, hills, ups and downs, it can cause a lot of uh, stress on, on the working muscles and especially things like downhill running. And so you're going to get um, areas of, of, of small, small amounts of damage to the muscle, physical damage and you know, our body will, will, will help remodel that through the process of breaking down those older damaged proteins and resynthesizing new ones in their place. And we know that that, that synthetic response um, can only be maximized when we eat um, something that has amino acids in it. And so dietary protein is, is going to be the vessel for that for most people. Uh, so it's part of that repair and recovery. But, um, you know, although... The majority of our energy um, uh, comes from uh, the carbohydrates uh, and, and fats as well in the exercise um, uh, to provide the ATP. Uh, we can't neglect the fact that uh, amino acids are also used as a source of fuel, albeit relatively minor. Um, anyway, from 2 to 5% of our energy comes from uh, the breakdown and mobilization of body proteins into amino acids to provide some of those uh, carbon backbones for, for ATP synthesis. Uh, but situations in which we might be uh, glycogen uh, low on um, uh, uh, endogenous carbohydrate, uh, we see that uh, the oxidation amino acids can, can increase up to 10% contribution to energy. And so we have to consider that we really only have two places in which we store amino acids in our body. And that's sorry, one place, and that's in, in protein. And so if we break down those proteins as a source of fuel, then these amino acids are not available for us to recover. And so we have to replace them in our diet, especially uh, with um, uh, the essential amino acids. And so, you know, the, the protein provides the building blocks for the repair and remodeling process, but also to replenish what our body naturally loses or uses as a source of fuel during the exercise. Yeah, yeah. And I think I, I listened to a, a, a podcast that you've, you've done before and um, uh, you, you explained how, you know, if you've got an athlete running at, say, 75% or so of their VO2 or somewhere like that um, and they're, they're exercising for an hour, they're burning through like 12 grams or so of protein. Yeah, so some of our, our uh, old stable isotope work, and so just quickly for the audience, the stable isotopes are amino acid uh, building blocks that are um, slightly heavier than most of those occurring in your body. So you can think about radioactive isotopes as something that's harmful, but we use stable isotopes in which there's, um, uh, there's an extra uh, 
extra neutron um, in the nucleus. So the amino acids are a bit heavier and we can track where they go. And so just doing some quick um, uh, back of the envelope type math on some old studies, uh, we realized that yes, uh, for um, uh, an amino acid like leucine, for example, which is a branch chain amino acid and one in which you can use readily in skeletal muscle as a source of fuel, if we look at how much an athlete would burn, as you mentioned, at 70%, for example, VO2 peak for an hour, um, the equivalent uh, is about uh, just over a gram or a gram and a half of leucine. And if you scale that up um, to total protein, it might be about 10 to 12 grams per hour. Um, and as I mentioned, um, that contribution to energy can increase when we become low on muscle glycogen. And so... You know, around that 90, 90 minute mark, if we haven't consumed anything, any uh, carbohydrate during exercise, and we're still maintaining that 70 to 75% intensity, uh, we're going to be pretty low on, on muscle and liver glycogen. And so we have an increased contribution uh, from protein. And so that, uh, you know, 10 to 12 grams per hour might end up being, you know, 15 grams, maybe up to 20 grams uh, at two, two and a half hours if you haven't provided amino or, uh, energy for your body. So, um, yeah, certainly those things can can contribute to the increased protein requirements that we see endurance athletes have. And um, in some cases, it actually exceeds um, what, what a resistance exercise athlete might require. Mm. Yeah, that's really interesting. And we might get into it further, but um, just thinking about that in terms of athletes that now do um, sessions where they're, you know, going into the sessions where they're training low or even athletes that are on the higher fat keto type diets, um, that the protein, you know, they're potentially burning through more protein than someone that's obviously entering into the session um, more carbohydrate, you know, repleted or on a high, higher carbohydrate diet. Yeah, uh, that's a that's a great point. And so, you know, just to touch on something quick, you mentioned there the the, the ketogenic athletes. Um, I'll have to admit we don't know a lot about what their um, uh, amino acid uh, metabolism is like or protein requirements are. Uh, I think this is actually a, a slightly different situation than typical athletes who who cycle through or c- consume a high carbohydrate diet. Because they become your body becomes so fat adapted, um, it, there's a possibility that your your contribution um, from protein uh, might not be increased during during exercise because they're so efficient at using uh, fat as a fuel. Um, that's my speculation, but I actually mm-hmm. think that their requirements probably aren't much different uh, um, if they're training on 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 a keto diet or naturally what would be a very low carbohydrate uh, diet. But it's where you mentioned where athletes are starting to to cycle in um, uh, periods of low carbohydrate availability training um, or even um, you know some of the work. Um, from James Morton on, on the fuel for work. So consuming just enough or beginning the, the exercise with just sufficient glycogen to ensure that when you finish, you've, you're, you're close to zero. I think those situations are when protein requirements might start to be elevated because your body is still adapted to a range of, of fuels. Uh, protein is going to be one of them. And um, 
you know, if you do a high intensity exercise, um, uh, for example, in the evening and then uh, take the principle of, of sleep low, we found that a situation like that can increase requirements in the, the exercise the morning after in which there's low glycogen availability um, by up to about 10 to 15 percent. And so it's these athletes that start to cycle in periods of low carbohydrate availability training that might actually need to focus a little bit more on their protein requirements. Mm. Yeah. And um, just um, briefly, what are the basic principles of eating and digesting and using protein in the body that are relevant to athletes? Um, yeah, so so protein is, is going to be you know, one of the most difficult macronutrients to digest. Um, we talk about um, the thermic effect of food, and so that's the energy your body has to expend to digest and metabolize the food. Fat is, is essentially zero. Our body really likes to absorb and store fat. <laughs> Uh, different types of carbohydrates, you know, maybe up to 10% of the energy you eat is used to, to metabolize that. Uh, protein can be up to 30% depending on what you consume. And so you have to think that um, if, it's, if it's a whole food or, um, you know, something like, you know, chicken or, or, or steak, it's going to take, you know, a good three to four hours for your body to, to, to digest that into um, individual amino acids in which it can be absorbed. And then once absorbed, the amino acids must be deposited in new proteins in the body or they're just used as a source of fuel. And so it's going to be a little bit uh, longer for your body to, to, to digest and absorb those. And it's the reason, one of the big reasons why protein is so satiating. Um, uh, whereas, uh, you know, more liquid sources or isolated proteins, um, such as a whey or a soy, uh, it's going to be taken, it's going to be digested and absorbed a little bit more rapidly. So within about three hours, your body has absorbed the amino acids and, and uh, been able to shuttle those to the different tissues in your body in which they're used to, 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 to build new functional proteins. Um, and so you can contrast that with, with carbohydrate, which, you know, might be as little as two hours, um, for, for some, for some, um, you know, uh, a large carbohydrate meal. So there's a bit more time involved with the digestion absorption of this macronutrient and something that, you know, athletes certainly have to be aware of as they as they periodize their nutrition throughout the day. Uh, not many people, uh, I certainly don't like having a big, uh, a big protein meal and then trying to, you know, train an hour later. It's just not going to sit very well with me. So um, a little bit more foresight sometimes is needed for planning how and, you know, what's the best way to eat the protein throughout the day. Yeah. yeah. And um, does how, I guess, a person respond to consuming protein differ whether they've been exercise or they're physically inactive, so say on a rest day? Um, the, some people think so. Um, so... What what uh, what the theory was, or some early research out of um, uh, out of Luke van Loon's lab um, in in the Netherlands was that at least in untrained individuals, um, after a bout of exercise, they're they're less able to absorb uh, amino acids from from their meal, and and the and the research suggested that 
when we exercise, we shunt um, the uh, blood from our body away from things like the intestines and, um, and the liver, for example, and more to the muscle, the working muscle, to provide the oxygen to fuel our exercise. And it's the ischemia that resulted, so low blood flow to, to the small intestine, for example, that was thought to result in, in some, some damage to, to the cells there. Um, and that impaired their ability to absorb nutrients immediately after exercise. Um, so that would be one difference between a rest and exercise in untrained individuals. But we replicated or, or we performed a, a study a few years ago in which we did this, something similar in endurance athletes. And we saw that despite there being markers of some of this uh, uh, intestinal damage due to ischemia, there was no difference in the way the athletes were able to absorb the nutrients. And so we think that because our athletes are constantly exposed to those gut-induced or exercise-induced ischemia, that, that their digestive system has, is more resilient and is able to metabolize the nutrients just as well as at rest. So in our hands, we don't see there being a difference between uh, the rest and the, and the recovery state as to how well athletes can, can digest and absorb uh, the amino acids in their diet. Um, where it might differ, though, is where those amino acids are used. And so if an athlete has performed exercise, it's likely that more of those amino acids are going to be delivered to the muscle, um, the exercise muscle, where they're able to contribute to some of the recovery and adaptation that we were talking about earlier. Um, and I guess the research in protein for weight training has kind of suggested that we have this protein dose anywhere between 0.3 to 0.5 grams per kilo in the meal, which is about 15 to 30 grams, obviously, depending on body mass. Um, so is that about right for optimizing the body's use of that protein for recovery and adaptations? And then they repeat that dose a few times during the day. Um, is that kind of um, similar for endurance athletes, or do we really not have good research to support that um, guideline yet? Yeah, that's a great question. Something I get asked a lot, and I and I think we're we're closer to be able to be to be able to say that that actually is fairly uh, reasonable for endurance athletes as well. And so some of the research that we've done actually suggests that that that, that per meal dose might be optimized at about 0.3 to 0.4 grams per kilogram. Um, and and what we mean by optimized is you know certainly your body can handle more protein in a single meal. And I probably do that every Christmas with, uh, with the extra helpings of, of turkey I have on my plate. Um, but we talk about uh, how to eat protein efficiently. What we want to do is maximize how much our body can use to rebuild proteins in a single meal. Because once we've maximized that threshold, um, any additional amino acids we consume in a meal, a very large meal, are just going to be directed to being used as a source of fuel because we can't store amino acids in our body like we do fat and carbohydrate. We only store amino acids in functional proteins. And so when we eat a meal, we rebuild our body um, and that has a threshold. And we see that it's about 0.3 to 0.4 
for the muscle. And um, a really nice uh, study by uh, Tyler churchward Vinay, now at uh, McGill University in Canada, when he was with uh, Luke Van Loon, um, did a very nice dose response. And so feeding athletes different amounts of protein after, I believe it was a two-hour um, uh, moderate intensity cycle ride. So maybe not what an ultra-endurance athlete would do, but certainly enough uh, of a stimulus that um, – uh, the body is also going to be using those amino acids as an energy, and uh, and saw that uh, right after exercise, about 0.5 grams uh, per kilogram was needed to both maximize what the muscle was using and replenish what they use as a source of fuel during exercise. And and so I think that maybe is what an athlete might look for if they're trying to maximize post exercise recovery. But then I think throughout the day, I think they can resort back to that 0.3 grams per kilogram. And uh, it's, it's it, intuitively, it's, it's also, um, uh, I feel, easier to parse out that information by saying, focus on getting sufficient energy. Uh, if you're looking to replenish muscle glycogen, sufficient carbohydrate as well. And then aim for about 0.3 to 0.4 grams per kilogram uh, protein per meal over about four to five meals per day, depending on uh, what you need to, to, to maximize your or replenish um, uh, your, your, your energy. So uh, I do think that that's, it's a long way to say that, uh, yes, I think 0.3 to 0.4 grams per kilogram per meal is probably a really good target for, for most, if not all athletes. Yeah. And would that differ, Dan, on a rest day compared to a day that you're actually training? So if I go out and do a big, you know, two-hour run today, but tomorrow is a complete rest day, do I need to still, con- you know, continue that regular serving of protein on my rest day as well? Uh, certainly, you know, we do see that whether you've exercised or whether you're you're unexercised, and so this is not maybe uh, athletes on a recovery day, but um, uh, uh, non-exercising individuals in general that. Spreading protein throughout the day uh, is is an efficient way to consume the macronutrient because you're gonna every meal you're gonna provide enough amino acids to maximize that muscle remodeling, which still happens on our rest days, yet not over overshoot that so that you're using more of those amino acids for, for fuel. So what what might differ is the number of meals you might you might be consuming so on a rest day you may only have three or four meals that are equally spaced out and that's probably all your your body needs uh to to replenish your or to offset your energy uh, demands whereas on a day when you're you're training or you've done a run or or you're you're doing multiple training bouts that's where the the meal frequency might might be needed to uh you know focus on what your body what your energy needs for your body but then also to provide that spaced out protein that allows your your body to to use it most efficiently mm. so yeah it, you know on a training day you might be looking at four to five meals and on a rest day it might be only three to four but the principle of spreading the protein out evenly in all those meals uh stands whether you've you're exercising or, or recovering mm. and because that remodeling isn't just you know a couple of hours after exercise, is it? It goes on for some time, you know, a day or two. Yeah, exactly. So it it, it might be up to forty eight hours after some exercise types of exercise, and um, you know certainly um, ultra and athletes uh, 
uh, going for your five or six hour runs, that's that's quite the stimulus. So you, that recovery will be occurring for at least a day or two after as well. And then, yeah, just in, I guess, in relation to that there. So when you do do sessions where um, you're out exercising for five hours or whatever it is, um, when you're doing those ultra long runs, um, they're obviously, you know, using and burning through protein there. Uh, is there any benefit in them t- consuming protein during the, the session, I guess, to help um, you know, optimize on the recovery and or adaptations during during the session. Yeah, great question. You know, at first first and foremost, I'd say, what's their comfort level? Mm-hmm. You know, because protein can sit a little, a little heavier in the stomach. If an athlete has trouble, you know, trial and error, and realizes that consuming protein during those long runs. Uh, causes some some big GI distress, then I would say no. There's there's don't don't consume that protein. Uh, but from the research that we see, um, when an athlete consumes a bit of protein during those long runs, uh, the body might actually preferentially use the protein that they eat as the fuel, which can spare some of the protein that would normally be used as a fu- as fuel from their body and. You know, I, I think of it as uh, it's it's not going to help their performance, um, but what it might do is allow them to begin their recovery process a little bit more quickly if if they haven't used as many of the of, of the body's proteins as fuel and they're using uh, what they eat as that fuel, then then that that could be a potential benefit. Um, but as we talked about, it doesn't necessarily need to be a lot of protein either. Um, you know, if if they have you know something halfway through that run that has about you know ten to twenty grams, or are able to space that throughout, um, you know, I see you know some some gels have have amino acids in it. Um, if that's something that sits well with them, then that could be a way to just provide the body with an alternative fuel that spares what would normally be used um, if they hadn't consumed that that protein. Uh, so th- does that pan out to a better recovery or uh, ultimately performance uh, over the long run, we don't know. We don't have that information. It's a very difficult uh, population to, to study and, and outcome to find as far as does performance differ if you tinker with some of these uh, small um, a, a dietary manipulations. But uh, certainly the theory is sound that if they can consume a bit of protein or even essential amino acids during exercise, then that might put them in a better position to recover more quickly after. Um, but I wouldn't say at this point that it's something that athletes should be doing or, or even have to do. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And that's probably a, a, a nice segue actually into to my next question, which is a bit of, I guess, the kind of devil's advocate question. And you, you mentioned earlier, like how this stuff is studied in terms of using isotope traces and measuring how the amino acids kind of move throughout the body. Uh, and then, you know, from my understanding, you then take a muscle biopsy. So you take a little bit of muscle out of someone's leg to actually see where those isotopes end up. And, and you measure, I guess, the, the turnover rate of those proteins within the muscle and I guess that's what's happening in the the very short term immediately post exercise and you're measuring you know really tiny little changes Um, but obviously if you know if I'm an athlete 
you know, what I care about ultimately is performance. You know, do I recover better? Do I perform better the next time or over a period of, you know, five or 10 or 20 weeks? Is my training going to be more beneficial because I've, you know, done this with protein um, rather than looking at, you know, what's happening, you know, within the muscle in that, you know, couple of hours after exercise or something like that. Um, do you feel that we're at the stage from a research point of view that you feel confident that the stuff that you do in the lab with the isotopes and the biopsies and everything translates into those sort of real world outcomes that athletes uh, ultimately, you know, that's what's important to them? Or do we have those sort of longer term studies now to be able to sort of confirm that? Where, where do you think we sit there currently? Yeah, um, I, I think... You know, we always talk about some of the acute studies we do in labs with, with the traces you mentioned is actually a very nice explanation of, of what they do and how we use them. Um, we see those as proof of principle. And so if we're in a situation in which we're maximizing the remodeling of body and muscle proteins, then, then we feel that that has to be a net benefit for the athlete over time. Um, the the differences we see in the lab over hours to to maybe a day or two, uh, while they might be say ten to twenty percent in favor of protein, for example, doesn't mean it's going to be a ten to twenty percent benefit at performance. I think you know as 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 you know, there's 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 far more that uh, we have to consider in an athlete's life that we can control very precisely in a lab that mm -hmm. doesn't necessarily map on to how they work, how they live, whether they walk their dog, the type of real food they eat. Um, but we do think that there's proof of principle in what we study being important for athletes over the long term. Um, it's a challenge, as you mentioned, though, to, to measure those benefits an athlete might obtain, even in a study. Um, you know, so performance outcomes, there's, there's so many factors that go into how well an athlete performs on a given day. And it could just be whether they woke up in a positive mind frame or not. So designing those studies that pull out performance benefits are, are very challenging to do. And, um, you know, we don't have a lot of good research also in elite athletes. Um, you know, we can look at anecdotally what elite athletes do and maybe learn from that. Athletes are always tinkering with their diets. And um, if something works for them, there's a chance it might work for other people. Um, but it's uh, it's it's difficult to to do the randomized controlled double blind studies that we need to be able to say there's a cause and effect here, and so we can't take a group of elite athletes and put one group on a diet which we don't think is going to be very good, another group on a diet that is, and ask them to perform. I mean, you're going to have very low uh, recruitment. I think um, you could argue at the ethics on something like that. Uh, so it's really hard to design those studies. But it wasn't elite athletes, but we, we um, did perform a study uh, in our lab in which we followed athletes um, over just four days of, of higher volume training uh, and were able to control everything they eat. We monitored all their activity and training um, and we provided them different amounts of protein based off of what we saw would be insufficient. Um, the current recommendation, low end of recommendation, 1.2 grams per kilogram versus what in the lab we found to be optimal using tracers at 1.8. And, and so we controlled everything. We provided them adequate carbohydrate. And we saw that over four days, 
Um, they, the athletes that were consuming the, the intake that we saw or we assumed that was sufficient from our acute study uh, maintained um, their, their five-kilometer time trial performance uh, and, and muscle strength. And the groups that consumed uh, um, a very low intake, which we knew was going to be suboptimal, and the lower boundary of what some might consider as optimal, 1.2 grams, it wasn't statistically different, but there was a, a loss of performance, so they got slower, and their muscles also became a little bit weaker. So the effect size were fairly small, uh, but we saw that that's we feel like it, that that is a is indication that protein does matter. And if we extended this over beyond four days, and we actually put them on a you know twelve week training program, for example, then then the then the adaptations or performance they would have had uh, after the twelve weeks, for example, would have been of similar mag magnitude. So so we have small controlled studies like that that do suggest that. Uh, how much protein you eat and, and maybe how you eat it uh, might affect the outcomes that athletes are, are interested in. Um, and we have to use that as, as an indication that uh, if it was sustained over time, then the athlete that are consuming, we consider to be optimal are also going to adapt and perform optimally. Mm. Um, and obviously not going to be worse. So it's, I guess it's one of those situations where it might be better, definitely won't be worse. So, you know, there's, there's no downside to, to taking that approach, I guess. Yeah, and just to quickly, that's a great point, if I may as well. Um, and we can't, we can't dissociate the individual from these findings too as well. And, you know, there's, as you know, working with athletes, there's, there's going to be trial and error. And some athletes are going to respond well to a certain dimension and others are, are not going to. And that might be due to physiology, it might be psychology. But, you know, one of the things that I tell athletes too is, you know, what we see in a textbook or what we find in research studies can provide a good basis for them to inform decisions they might want to make in their training, but ultimately they have to figure out, does it work for them? And there still is a very individual approach. And, and some athletes might do very well uh, on a diet that we'd look on paper and say that shouldn't be optimal. Uh, or, you could argue that they might do well on that, but they could do better if they change their diet. So the, there is a lot of tinkering that um, that needs to go into this. But we think that you know what we're seeing in our in the studies that are published provide the, a good foundation for an athlete to to start their tinkering from. Yeah, yeah, no, it makes total sense. Um, really good explanation, and I think I think often people. Um, don't appreciate how difficult those kind of long-term studies are when you're manipulating diet. And then in, on top of that, in this case, you know, training as well. Um, you know, you're basically controlling, you know, major aspects of people's lifestyles for, you know, a sustained period of time. And I think anyone who's done those kind of trials, uh, one, realizes how hard it is to do and, and two, says never again, I'm not going to do that again yes. um, because it is so difficult. Um, and people kind of look at the, you know, the drug trial where you take the red pill or the blue pill for five years and see what happens. Well, you know, take this pattern of eating or that pattern of eating, it's very difficult. People end up reverting to their, their natural sort of habitual pattern of eating and it's very difficult to maintain any kind of difference for, for any period of time. And then, as you said, you add training on top of that um, is almost impossible. So yeah, it's yeah. very rare to see those kind of studies. So we, uh, as much as we'd love to have them and, and they'd be perfect for answering the question, uh, they're very impractical to do, do in the real world. But as you said, that one sort of 1.6 grams per kilo per day 
So that's your sort of your 0 0.3, 0 0.4 broken up into sort of four to five serves. Um, mm -hmm. It seems to be about right from what we know. Does the, um, does the type of protein matter? Um, that's often a, a common question that we get for, from the athletes that we're working with, um, you know, like even if they're going into, they're looking at protein supplements, they're like, oh, should I take rice protein, pea protein? Is one superior than the other? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a, <laughs> that's a great question too. Um, when, we, when we think about protein quality, um, a reductionist approach is to look at what is what are the, what are the what's the composition of different amino acids in a protein, and what we see is that the essential amino acids are ones that your body can't make, and the branch chains are are leucine, uh, isoleucine, and valine. So these are preferentially used uh, during exercise, during endurance exercise, as a source of fuel. So you can look at a protein as what percentage of the protein is essential and what percentage is the branch chain. And, and things that are higher in the branch chains um, might be more optimal for endurance athletes because of this need to replenish those amino acids in, in, in their diet. Um, and so proteins are going to have different profiles. Um, you know, whey, for example, uh, and, and a lot of uh, um, uh, animal-based proteins are higher in essentials in the branch chains. Um, whereas a plant-based are, are typically a little bit lower, um, uh, not always, but, but sometimes. Uh, so, so there, there's the composition angle. There's also the digestibility. And so, um, you know, things, the animal base tend to be a little bit more easily digested, whereas a plant-based, uh, might not be. And, you know, one of the reasons is that plants evolved not to be eaten. And so they're going to, they're going to be harder to digest for, for humans, um, and then the other is what else comes in that protein. So here's where we talk about whole foods. And there's a lot of components that might support um, uh, uh, the amino acids as, as building blocks. And, you know, I don't have all the answers that, or I, I can't tell you specifically what athletes should be eating. But in general, what we see is that, you know, athletes who, who consume plant-based proteins might want to include about a 10 to 15 percent buffer on the quantity of protein they eat because it's going to help um, override some of the issues with digestibility or or, or um, certain or branch chain for example um, amino acid content um, and then um, the other thing we don't quite know as well is that you know a lot of the research that we study we used to study um, uh, how much protein uh, an, an individual needs is using isolated protein sources. And, you know, whey is a, a typical one. Um, we've done a study with egg proteins. So they're very complete proteins, but they're also not complete foods or even how we might eat those proteins. And and um, uh, a, a study um, at, the, at the University of Illinois with Nick Bird uh, and Stefan von Vliet as the lead author, um, we, we compared um, uh, egg whites versus whole eggs. Um, after, in this case, it was resistance exercise, but, you know, we could assume that maybe it's the same after endurance. Uh, but we compared the two and what we'd expected to see in our hypothesis was actually that they're going to be exactly the same in their ability to support muscle remodeling. 
Um, and, and we thought that that was, uh, that was low hanging fruit and, uh, it was going to allow us to say that, you know, you can eat your eggs as well and not just the isolated, uh, protein it provides, but, uh, to our surprise, the, the whole eggs with the yolks in them actually outperform the egg whites. And so here's the whole food matrix being better than, uh, some of its parts. And, and so it could, it could very well be that uh, what we need in a meal from a whole food source, when you also combine the different macronutrients that people are going to eat, uh, might be a little bit less than what we've studied in, in a lab with isolated protein sources. So we still don't really know um, a lot. And this is where I talked about reductionist versus holistic. Um, you know, a bunch of reductionist studies allow you to provide a holistic picture or you can feed people whole food and see how it responds. Um, but I think the, the, the 0.3 grams per kilogram is a pretty good target for anyone looking for a complete meal. And if it's a plant-based meal or a plant-based supplement, and you know, an extra 10% um, might allow them to fill in any of the gaps that that um, uh, digestibility or protein or amino acid composition of the, of the protein might, might, might be missing. Yeah. Just a quick question on that, because I've always wanted to know this. So, like, you know, obviously we're at the stage where we can start to look at, you know, whole foods, like, you know, the egg white versus um, the whole egg. And I know, you know, Luke Van Loon's lab's done, you know, like a whole steak versus minced beef mm -hmm. and, and that kind of thing as well. Are we at the stage, or is it even possible, you know, with the, the research tools that we have to actually look at whole meals? So you're not just having the steak, you're having that with, you know, potatoes and vegetables and things as well to see when you add in, you know, fibre and, as you said, other macronutrients and water content and all that kind of stuff that you get from eating an entire meal rather than just one food. Is that even possible to do from a research point of view? And is that sort of... On, on someone's agenda that you're aware of? To be yeah, done. great. I, I'm sure it's on, on agendas. And as you mentioned, uh, Luke Van Loon's at the forefront of studying different types or of protein. And so maybe he's he's got something in the works. Uh, without getting too technical, it starts to become challenging using these uh, traditional isotopes in which we infuse them into the vein and then measure uh, the remodeling after, after a meal. It gets... A little bit technically challenging when we're looking at a whole food, uh, but what we're starting to see is um, uh, labs using um, what we call free living tracers. So that allowed allows us to study athletes and individuals outside of the lab. And um, uh, so, as an example, um, is what we call heavy water. So um, it's deuterium oxide, and deuterium mm. is a heavier form of of, of the element hydrogen. And, um, you know, it, 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 once people consume this, we have 70% of our body's water. And so it's going to distribute throughout and we can actually measure the transition of the deuterium onto amino acids that are incorporated into muscle. And so now we can study muscle protein remodeling, uh, over days to weeks outside the lab. Uh, and so this is now, it's going to, you know, uh, anything an athlete does throughout the day. Uh, from sleeping to walking to to eating is going to be reflected in how well their muscle is able to to remodel during a training or recovery period. And so here's an opportunity where you can start to to feed people whole meals and study how it how it helps them helps them recover um, in we call it, like I said in a free living setting. 
and um, it's it it, beca- it can become a little bit messy because you have all these different factors that impact on how their muscles recovering. Uh, but that's an opportunity that we're able to study a little bit more of a complete dietary approach. And I know people are, are doing. And um, um, so those studies are being done and we'll probably have a little bit more information on that in a few more years. But I think that's probably another way to get at this um, uh, dietary manipulation to outcome um, a question. Mm. Yeah, um, and what about timing? You, we kind of spoke about, you know, after we exercise, we've we've got, you know, potentially depending on the exercise, 24 to 48 hours post-exercise um, where we're still, our body's still recovering. Um, but how important is it for an athlete to consume protein immediately after their session? I always say that... Um, our body will recover if you don't if you don't feed it, um, but we know clearly that if you do feed it, it recovers um, at a higher rate. And so, um, if if you if you're not eating immediately after exercise, in the grand scheme of things, it, it might not matter uh, because, as you mentioned, if we were recovering for 24, 48 hours, that one hour post exercise window is becomes relatively small and, and arguably less important. But for an athlete who's looking to, to kickstart the recovery or, or might be training more than once uh, throughout the day, uh, certainly consuming protein as close to the cessation of exercise as possible just allows your body or provides the, 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 uh, provides the building blocks for your body to start that recovery process more quickly. Um, and we talked about how difficult it is to design a study that can measure performance outcomes over 12 weeks. Now you can imagine that what impact does that one hour window have after each exercise bout over 12 weeks? And it's probably imperceptibly small and we probably couldn't design a study to, to tease it out. Uh, but uh, practically or theoretically speaking, providing your body with the substrates it needs to recover allows that process to happen more quickly. So while it's not essential, I think it's important for athletes to try and periodize their training around their meals or be able to consume a source of, of protein in supplemental form, for example, after exercise, uh, if they're going to be more than about an hour or two away from their next meal, just to allow that recovery to start. Yep. Um, and it tends to be like a good kind of um, ritual for them to get into as well. And I think with endurance athletes too like if you've done a long session um, and you don't eat and you leave it a bit later you're probably going to be a bit more tempted to maybe snack on foods that you don't necessarily um, really need Uh, so so it's a good habit to get into Uh, and then just I guess with endurance athletes they often focus on um, you know getting in carbohydrate after um, exercise for replenishing their, their carb stores However, they may not always do that depending on when the next session is. Um, does carbohydrate, um, I guess, interact with, with protein for recovery? And should we have carbs even if we um, don't need it to refuel per se? Not really. And so when we talk about the recovery that we measure in the lab in which we're measuring uh, protein synthesis in the muscle, for example, 
um, we see that having carbohydrates or just and protein versus just protein uh, doesn't impact that that process at all. And so um, where carbohydrates might play a bit of a role is that when we eat them, there's typically a larger uh, increase uh, in insulin. And insulin might um, uh, lower protein breakdown a little bit. And so you can think about turnover as being building new proteins and breaking down old ones. And, and the difference between these two determines whether or not your muscle is, is growing or, or, or shrinking. So positive balance synthesis is greater than breakdown. And so carbohydrates may play a small role on the breakdown side. Um, but for all intents and purposes, uh, we, we don't really need to consume carbohydrates for protein to have the benefit of helping our muscles uh, remodel and recover. Um, athletes that are interested, though, in, in replenishing muscle glycogen quickly, there does seem to be a benefit of having protein along with those carbohydrates uh, and able to you know, help, help that process occur um, and it might be because uh, the protein also can increase uh, um, uh, insulin and that helps drive that, that carbohydrate into the muscle to help replenish muscle glycogen. But if an athlete uh, purposely wants to uh, maintain a low muscle glycogen stores, then certainly consuming protein is not going to affect muscle glycogen, but it can help um, the muscle uh, repair itself uh, independent of whether or not they're, they're consuming carbohydrate as well. Um, and then are there any special scenarios, I guess, if we think about injury, rehab, or we're actively trying to lose weight while we're, we're training, where you'd recommend, um, I guess, a, a, a different approach? Uh, certainly. So what we see with, with weight loss um, is typically we athletes um, and the general population, I would imagine, too, is more focused on trying to lose lose fat uh, and maintain um, uh, muscle or, or lean mass. Within reason, I think there's also benefit for some athletes to be lighter in general um, uh, for a better exercise economy. But um, losing too much muscle obviously is not a good thing. And so what we see is that the requirement for protein is elevated during periods of negative energy balance. So purposeful weight loss when it's done properly over a long period of time, um, athletes uh, who may typically target, say, 1.6 grams per kilogram might want to be edging up to about 1.8, maybe 2 grams per kilogram to help maintain that lean mass during weight loss. Um, I, I'd say as a caveat, that, that shouldn't be done at the expense of for example, say carbohydrate. If they're looking to maintain exercise intensity, you also have to make sure that you're consuming out of carbohydrate, so that that protein, you know, can't can't push carbohydrate out of the equation, and you know it starts to become challenging on designing diets when you think about reducing energy but still maintaining adequate intake of all the different macronutrients. But we typically focus on protein, carbohydrate, and then the fat is, you know, what's left behind. So certainly a little bit more protein during that, that targeted weight loss is going to help uh, maintain muscle mass um, with, with, that, with that weight loss. With, with injury recovery, um, I know there are a lot, some labs working on this a little bit more. Um, 
we typically don't see that protein requirements are elevated during injury recovery. And so as long as they're consuming adequate protein um, uh, throughout the day, then I think they don't need to really manipulate um, uh, how much they're eating. Um, the what that they're eating is now what's being studied. And some have some labs, um, uh, Keith, Keith Bart um, at UC Davis, for example, is studying the potential benefits of, of collagen-based uh, proteins and uh, for the repair of, of collagen. And um, there's a potential that uh, um, collagen supplementation during injury recovery, if it's a soft tissue injury, for example, uh, may have some benefits. Um, we're, we're not there to be able to say definitely, but collagen is, is, uh, is something that's relatively uh, cheap. Um, it's, it's, it's protein, so it's not essentially toxic. And so some athletes may just want to tinker with that just in general, just to ensure that they have adequate, um, uh, actually, um, uh, non-essential amino acids uh, to help support um, their, their, their soft tissue injury recovery. Yeah. Mm. We spoke to um, Dr. Rebecca Alcock, one of our colleagues actually, who um, went to, to Keith's lab as part of her PhD, um, looking at yeah collagen and the cool engineered ligaments and stuff he does yes. in, in the lab over there. It's really cool stuff. Really neat yeah. stuff. So um, anyone who's who's got a particular interest in that, you can listen to episode 16A um, with Beck, where she sort of talked a bit more about that. Um, I guess just to finish up with a couple of questions. Um, I guess a lot of people will still go out and buy protein powders and protein supplements and that kind of thing. Uh, it sounds like from what you've been talking about so far in our discussion, compared to eating, I guess, normal foods that contain protein, there's not necessarily an advantage. It's more just the, the convenience, I guess. Uh, that's exactly what I put it down to. And that's what I talk to any athletes I work with is it's the supplements um, are, are, are convenient if it's um, – there, there may also be a place for them too, as I mentioned. If if an athlete is interested in tinkering with with uh, consuming something during exercise, they're typically more easily uh, digested and absorbed. Um, so that could be a benefit. Um, if they're removed from a meal and they want to consume something quickly, it's an option as well. But but uh, I I certainly advocate in favor um, uh, some sort of whole food approach uh, because it's going to typically come with uh, extra um, energy density, nutrient density, um, and it's essentially how we evolved to eat as well. Um, we didn't evolve to eat individual uh, nutrients, so um, that, yeah. that's, I think, uh, pushes the needle in favor for, for whole foods for me, for sure. Yep, yep, makes sense. And then there's, I guess, a few of those sort of whole foods that are starting to get studied a little bit more. Um, things like you know, insects and microprotein and, and a lot more of those sort of vegan protein sources as well. Um, it's still, I guess, a fairly new area of research, some, some of those? Yeah, certainly new, but I, I think it's a, it's a great next step as well. Um, a large proportion of, of, of uh, um, a significant portion, excuse me, of the human population subsists on, on insect protein. And so, um, you know, they seem to be doing quite fine. Um, we can engineer proteins in the lab through uh, diff different bacteria, uh, such as mycoprotein. Uh, um, and these are all, uh, 
all great options, and I, I think we should definitely explore them. You know, any chance that we can um, use the technology we have to develop nutritionally complete proteins that may be ethically sourced um, and sustainable, I think is something we should definitely strive to do. And you know, f- right now the research suggests that they're that they are a very viable uh, protein source, and I don't see why uh, anyone would uh, assume that they wouldn't be. So. You know, certainly more research in this area, and and I, I definitely support it, and I and I think it's going to show that um, uh, you know protein comes in all shapes, sizes, and tastes, and uh, and your body uh, can use them um, maybe equally well as as uh, as traditional uh, foods that we associate with with protein in in, in uh, higher income or or, or or Western cultures, which um, you know where a lot of the research, unfortunately, um, is is also done. And I guess you even have like lab-grown meat and things like that sort of starting to emerge now as well. And I mean, that might be an opportunity to sort of be able to tinker in the lab with, you know, the amino acid profile of different foods and things like that. Who knows down the, down the track? Definitely. Yeah. And, and yeah. I know that, that that is occurring as well. So uh, stay tuned. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. All right. Well, I think that's pretty much it in terms of the questions we had around protein. So I'm going to hand over to Steph to finish off with our bonus round. This is the fun part where um, our listeners get to know a little bit um, about you. And um, just in in our intro, actually, you mentioned how um, you you were you an athlete yourself. Um, so what's your sporting um, background? Um, it's a bit of a cliche and probably a stereotype, but growing up in Canada, um, you know, hockey was my sport, uh, ice hockey. So, um, that's, that's what I played competitively. And then, um, in the off season, I I was an advocate of, of, of not doing hockey 12, 12 months of the year. So I would, uh, you know, play, uh, uh, soccer or, or football, I think as most of the world calls it, um, American football, uh, so things that that uh, that you know very close to the exercise uh, and activity patterns of, of of ice hockey. But I I really enjoyed the team aspect of it, and uh, um, you know a bit of a plug for the listeners. I it it, it is the fastest sport in the world. So uh, I... <laughs> <laughs> you switching over our listeners to, to ice hockey? <laughs> yeah. Uh, one of the things on your bucket list that you have not yet done. Um, activity related. Um, I've, I've gotten, I'm, I'm a, I'm a, I've done a half a career marathon. So I think, uh, um, I've always wanted to, to, to run a marathon and it might not seem like a, an accomplishment for many of your listeners, but, uh, you know, most, if you look at uh, ice hockey, you know, we, we might go hard for about 30 seconds and then, and then, and then we need about three minutes rest. So we're, we're kind of soft on the endurance aspect. So, you know, getting through, um, you know, 42.2 kilometers would be a huge accomplishment for me. And, uh, and, and I do, I do more running now. Uh, certainly I, I did my first half marathon when I was, uh, working, um, at Nestle in Switzerland and, uh, you know, all my coaching inspiration came from Trent Stellingworth. Uh, so, uh, I've always already reached out to him for a plan on how to train for a marathon. So that's the, the activity bucket list and <laughs> and just a personal interest i've always wanted to jump out of a plane so one day um i'm getting older maybe i'll celebrate my 50th with uh with with a bit of a parachute but that's that's high on my list as well awesome 
Awesome. And uh, the Olympics obviously it's just finished. Um, what was your favourite sport to watch? Oh, all of them, to be honest. And I was I was talking to my wife about this. One of the great things about the Olympics, I think, is that you get to see sports that you don't normally watch or even aren't even on TV, at least here in North America. And uh, I happened to find myself watching, um, uh, I think, the gold medal volleyball match. And it is just incre- incredibly impressive how hard uh, these athletes can hit the ball and how high they can jump. So I liked watching it all, to be honest. Um, you know, swimming is something that's not always on televised and what those athletes can do. And I know um, you in Australia are very strong in, in this this sport. So, you know, incredibly impressive. Um, but I but I have to tip my hat to, to, you know, to track and field. And, uh, um, well, I shouldn't say that. One of my favorite actually was was the uh, women's soccer, um, and you know, Canada won the gold first ever, and I think it's long overdue. But uh, watching those athletes uh, compete was just inspirational. So uh, fantastic to watch that. And then the other one is you know track and field, and um, uh, watching Andre de Grasse um, take home a gold uh, and and the four by one in Canada be able to land a bronze. It's I'm, I'm I'm kind of plugging the home team here, but uh, th- those were also also favorites. But yeah, just just sitting down and uh, and killing an hour or two with whatever happens beyond was was super exciting. Mm. And um, is there a sport you've always wanted to do yourself, but you haven't yet had had the chance? Yes, and I'm maybe too old for it, but I've always wanted to play rugby. Um, and. Uh, it just it just looks like such a pure form of the sport um you know uh no 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 pads just a ball and i think it's 11 11 guys all all aiming uh for the same goal and um that's one one sport that i i wish i had the opportunity to play but but never never had the opportunity um it's not as not as it's growing certainly growing in in canada but um you know at the time if i had had the opportunity i would have had to choose between ice hockey and rugby given the demands and the conflicting seasons and it probably still would have been ice hockey but uh, uh i've always wanted to to to, to try and play uh, um, rugby do you uh live by any piece of particular piece of advice or motto that you um i know that helps keep you going uh yeah i i i talk to my students all the time about my my life philosophy of abc and um, in one iteration, it's always be curious. So, you know, uh, be, be in awe of the world around you, of, of science, of nature, and, and, you know, try to learn. Um, and I think that certainly keeps me going forward in science. My curiosity is what allows me to uh, ask the questions and, and, and keep searching for those answers. Um, the other aspect of ABC is always be critical because uh, there's a lot of information out there and we have to sort out, you know, what's, what's true and, and what's, what might not be. Uh, and that also uh, shares in, 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 in science, um, you know, being critical of findings of your own as well as others. Um, and then uh, always be courteous and I just try and, I try and be a, a good person, um, empathetic, um, and welcoming. So, um, 
that's that's kind of my all-encompassing life philosophy that uh, that that keeps me going, and and hopefully I'm able to to do all all three of those ABCs as well. Mm. I like those, and a common one um, with our guests has been um, similar to your last one there about always being courteous, always being kind. Like Louise Burke, yes. mentioned something similar. Yeah. Well, she says, um, she says, else? don't be a dick, though. <laughs> oh, who said that? Ben. No, that was Louise. Oh, Louise. Yeah. <laughs> well, I kind of worded it a bit nicer. Yeah, I can. Oh, I'm just. That's what that was her. Her words, not mine. I can hear her saying that. Yeah. 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 Exactly right. Awesome. Uh, All right. Well, yeah. thanks so much for your time, Dan. Um, we covered a lot in that podcast, but I think some really helpful information for people out there around protein and, you know, how much and when and what and, you know, how much does it matter and all that kind of stuff and, and particularly in in the, the sports that they're doing, running, cycling and triathlon. So, yeah, thanks so much for your time. It's great to see some more work happening in this area and, uh, yeah, we look forward to, to following uh, all of the work that you're doing and um, seeing what comes of it. Great. And thank you again for the opportunity to, to speak to you uh, and your listeners about the research that we and others do. And, and hopefully they're able to take a little something away from this that uh, helps improve their, their training and, and gets them to whatever goal they're, they're, they're striving to reach. Thanks so awesome. much. Thank you. All right. Take care. Okay, fantastic to hear from Associate Professor Dan Moore over there in Toronto. Um, as we said before, uh, at the start of the podcast, Jeff, probably one of my favorite ones that we've recorded. We just threw so many questions at him and he just went bang, bang, bang and answered them all, I think really clearly, explained things really well. Um, and we covered a huge amount of ground uh, within that within that interview, which is fantastic. Um, so I guess coming back to that that question, you know, do I need more protein? I guess you know, it's, it's really, well, depends on how much protein you have in the first place. Um, but I guess a lot of people are possibly getting enough protein, but maybe it's just they're getting it all stacked at one big meal of the day rather than having it sort of spread out over three or four or five um, more even serves of protein throughout the day. Mm, yeah, yep. And, and it's pretty easy to then, you know, um, be able to get it in if, you know, we do space it out and we have, you know, your four or five hits, particularly if we're in a heavy training um, day um, and you think if that's going to have your 20 or 30 grams of protein. If my um, mass is pretty good, Alan, if I get six hits and I'm getting 30 grams, then um, I'm getting in a heck of a lot of protein, right? Yep, exactly right. Mm. Heck of a lot. That's a good, good mathematical answer. <laughs> <laughs> my brain right. couldn't work quick enough i couldn't add it up <laughs> all right um okay so um on on that note i guess next episode is uh episode 19b so it's our athlete episode on the same question the same topic um so we thought this time we'd invite someone who should know about how to integrate protein into their daily diet for training because they are a sports dietitian as well as an athlete uh, and that's um, elite paratriathlete David Bryant. So um, this is also a great episode because the Paralympics starts next week uh, and Dave's heading off to Tokyo. In fact, by the time you listen to this, he'll be, I think, uh, less than 24 hours away from jumping on the plane to Tokyo um, to go over uh, to represent Australia at the Paralympics. So um, great to hear from him uh, and very generous of him to give up his time, you know, only a week or so before mm. heading off to Tokyo to talk about 
uh, how he integrates protein into his training in terms of the types of foods, the quantities, the timing, all that practical stuff, um, and and how he fits that around his his busy schedule. I mean, he's got a young kid. He works obviously as a dietitian, but also has training as well. So uh, he packs a lot into his day, and he has to sort of squeeze the protein throughout that as well. So uh, it's really good to to have a listen to how he does that, but also then you know from his experience working with other athletes, how he does it with them as well in terms of what he would would recommend mm, yeah yeah um so yeah we'll, we'll chat to dave about that and his sporting background um a bit more about paratriathlon more broadly and then yeah obviously the um how he sort of incorporates protein into his his day-to-day schedule around training which is great excellent um so i think that basically wraps us up for today steph mm. hope everyone's doing well in in various stages of lockdown mm. uh, around australia and obviously around the world and uh, looking forward to, to getting stuck into the Paralympics as they start off next week. Yeah, can't wait, can't wait. Uh, excellent. Awesome. Yeah, we'll see everyone uh, next episode. Yep, we'll do. See you then. Bye.